Um, but if you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, we're in chapter 6, uh, and we will uh, continue on um, from there. Let me pray. Father, uh, come and be glorified, Lord, and, and ultimately uh, it's not in the outward things we're doing, but really it, it comes down to the attitude of our heart as we do those things. And so, Lord, as we sit under your word, we want to have hearts that are um, submitted to it, ready to receive from you, ready to hear from you, ready to apply, Lord, what it is you're teaching us through it. Lord, we want to lift up uh, your son. He's worthy to be lifted up and uh, to receive all the glory uh, that should be his and is his. So, Lord, I do bless our study of your word. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, we're in chapter 6, uh, third or fourth study now, in this particular chapter. And, and you may remember, if you've been with us, if you haven't, if you've been online, and if you haven't, I'll t teach you for the first time. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, not 1 necessarily, but verse 3, it begins the final section of, of this book. Uh, and it deals with Paul kind of wrapping the book up, uh, where he started, all the stuff in the middle, and now he's kind of putting the bow on it here. And so it's not surprising then that he returns to a place where he began. And the place that Paul began this book was with false teachers. Again, remember, Timothy was being sent in Paul's place to go to the city of Ephesus. Paul had to go somewhere else, deal with some other things. Timothy was being sent there. And one of the things he really had to deal with was the false teachers and the false teachings that had made their way into that body of believers. Now, as he was discussing those false teachers, one of the things that he spent some time with last week, we spent time with it last week, and Paul did in those first few verses there of chapter 6, was sort of the motivation of these false teachers. Where, where's it coming from? And, and I think that's helpful, because if we can see the motivations that lead a particular person into one direction, we can then begin to check our own, motiv our own motivations as well. Because if I let other people astray, it, it may have the tendency to lead us astray as well. And so Paul said that these folks, they had three motivations, these false teachers. One was pride. If you look back to verse 4, he talks about how they were puffed up with conceit. That they, they didn't really know what they thought they knew, but they thought they knew so much that it gave them a big head. And Paul talks about then this pride that these false teachers had. The second thing Paul pointed out was in verse 4 also, a little further down in that verse, and he talked about how they had an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. And again, this was this point of not having discussions, not about debating things to learn, but having debates to prove how much you know. And again, a lot of their knowledge was that Gnostic knowledge that we've talked about, that it was secret spiritual knowledge revealed to them nobody else had, and they would deliver it to other people and stuff. And so that was another one of their motivations, was to prove how much they know and how much you didn't know. And then the last one, which is kind of what we're going to build off of today, just as Paul built off of it, was this idea of covetousness. And if you look, that's verse, uh, I don't know, verse 5 there. And he says, in constant friction among the people, depraved the mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of, of gain. And so they, their motivation was covetousness. 
And they would use their position in a church of some sorts in order to get as much as they could for themselves financially. That godliness was a means of gain. Now, from there, Paul then goes off and he he says, well, you know, let me say a few words then about this idea of covetousness. And so that's what verses 6 through 10 are going to focus on. It was a motivation of the false teachers, but clearly it's something that I think impacts all of us, doesn't it? And particularly as we live in a wealthy society, relatively speaking to the entire world and entire world history, living in a wealthy society, we have access to good things, nice things. And I think if, if I'm any indicator, the more access you have to those nice things, the more nice things you want. And your heart gets drawn toward those. This is pretty good. I, I told some friends a story. We were taking a flight recently, and it was a long flight. It was going to be overnight. And they said, would you like to, to upgrade? You can bid to upgrade your seat to first class. And so my wife, she put in some low bid, and we got it. And we got to sit in first class. I never want to go back. I never want to go back to, to last class or whatever that is. It is so nice in first class. I had no idea. Uh, how nice it is here. And so our hearts are drawn to it. It feels good. We enjoy it. It appeals uh, to our nature. So covetousness is by no means a problem that is limited to these false teachers. I think it's something that every one of us, either maybe we have wrestled with and we've dealt with it and we've put it aside and we just have to be on our guard against it, or maybe it's something that we're presently struggling with. Now, these guys here, they imagined, they had this idea that, that came from nowhere. It's, it, the, the wording is this idea of they created something out of thin air. They imagined that godliness was a means to gain. And what we discover about those false teachers is that godliness wasn't their goal any longer. Their goal was gain. Now, they would use godliness to get to that gain if that worked, but their goal was to get to this point of gain here. Paul says that. Now, that doesn't mean, however, Paul's against godliness. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he's even against gain. He just doesn't think that the one exists to produce the other. Are you with me on that particular statement there? Paul's going to go on and make this case that gain cannot be our primary pursuit. That leads to covetousness. He'll even go on to say, and we'll look at it a little bit later in our study, that covetousness can result in, or it can be, a root of every kind of evil. And so when we think of the sin that's listed in the Bible, I'm sure a lot of us, all right, let, let's list the worst sins. And I'm sure some of us, murder, oh, that's terrible. You know, and adultery, oh, that's terrible. And rape and stuff like that, that's terrible. And we, we might be stealing from a bank, that's terrible. And we might list certain things. I have a feeling Many of us would list covetousness somewhere on the list, but probably down on the list. Am I fair with that assessment? Well, Paul will say that covetousness is a root of every kind of evil. Paul might leapfrog that toward the top of the list, and something that we certainly need to be on our guard against. Here's a definition of covetousness. It's an insatiable desire for wealth or possessions, an insatiable desire for wealth or possessions. That's what the, uh, I don't know, Webster or whoever, that's the dictionary definition of it. Biblically, however, it's not just limited to wealth 
or possessions. It's not just money. It's not just cars. It's not just houses and things like that. Biblically, it can include such things as relationships. People can covet other people's relationships or another person. Or it could be uh, the status that another person has. Man, I wish I was in that position, or I wish I had that family relationship, or I wish I had that particular job. You can covet those particular things. So it goes much further than just what the dictionary might list as an insatiable desire for wealth or possessions. And so we're going to cut part of that definition. Biblically, it's an insatiable desire. It's something that just can't be fulfilled. It just can't be met. When God delivered to Moses what has become known as the Ten Commandments, Here's how he concluded those commandments, the ten of them. He said this, And you shall not cover your, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And so as we look at that, your neighbor's house, that would certainly refer to his possessions. But your neighbor's wife enters into the realm of relationships. Your neighbor's servants or ox or donkey, that I think enters into more than just possessions, but status. That that person has what he has, that he can have servants or she can have uh, oxen or, or the like there. Again, in and of itself, I don't think it's wrong to see something. I didn't even finish yet, Mr. Melvin. You don't know where I'm going. I don't think it's wrong necessarily to see something that someone has and say to yourself, you know, I'd like to have something like that. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. And I I think that could actually be used for good. Well, get yourself in school, get yourself some training so you can get a promotion at work and then you can buy that particular thing for yourself. I think it could serve in this place of a motivation to actually go and to acquire that particular thing. Some of you are like, I don't know yet where you're going. I think where it crosses the line is again when that desire becomes insatiable. I think it crosses the line is when the desire for a person or thing, it creates a counteracting experience in our own hearts that causes us to become things like envious or jealous toward the other person that has those things. Or maybe to some degree angry with the, it's not fair. Why do they have all the good things? Why, you know, and so on. And we become angry or bitter or envious toward that other person. That's crossed the line. I think it can be called, it can cause us, or when it causes us to become unthankful to God for what we do have, and instead we begin to focus on all the things that we don't have. And God, if you really loved me, you'd let me have these particular things. Oh, sure, I got this and I got that and I got this, but what I really want is that. You become unthankful. I think that has crossed the line. I think your covetousness has crossed the line when it leads to pride in your own life. Pride about what you have and other people don't. I'm better than other people because I have these things or because I've acquired these things. Or even if it leads to a point of shame. I'm no good because I don't have these things. I think your covetousness has crossed the line. And I'm sure you can come up with some other examples of those strong desires that might even lead you to sin. I want this so much, I'm willing to do anything to get it. Well, that's crossed the line. And the Bible makes it clear that even though we may list covetousness way down on the list, the Bible makes it clear that covetousness is a sin. 
And it's one of the ten that are listed there. There's other commandments that are listed in the Bible, but most of us have heard of the ten of them, uh, commandments there. Here's the interesting, I think, about that. As you look at those ten commandments, with the exception, perhaps, of honoring your mother and your father, it's the only commandment that, is, that can remain completely internal. Nobody else has to know about it, but you could still be sinning. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you go murder someone, people are going to find out. If you start stealing from other people, that's an action that you do. But covetousness is something that can sit inside of you. It could be sitting inside of you right now. And everyone in this room is thinking, what a great Christian he or she is. But it's there in your heart, and it's having its impact in your heart. And so this isn't something to just look past and be like, well, as long as I don't act on it, it's okay. No, because it can grip your heart. Today I've entitled the study, In the Grip of Greed, because I think it is something that every one of us can struggle with. And if Paul is right, and do we think he is? We do. If Paul is right... It can be the root or a root of all kinds of evil in our lives. And certainly we don't want that to be the case. It's a root of all evil. Soon we become bitter. Soon we begin to accuse God. Soon we begin to lie, cheat, and steal. Paul says that these false teachers imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And as I said a moment ago, Paul's certainly not against godliness, and he's not even against gain. This is what he wrote to the Philippians. Paul said this, I know how to be brought low. The idea of being brought low is to not have. Dramatic pause, uh, as I find where we left off. (laughs) And he says, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. You know, so what the times he had plenty, he wasn't sinning because he had plenty. And the times where he didn't have any, he wasn't in a better place with God because he, I'm poor and hungry, so God must be happy. Nothing. He said, whatever the circumstance brings me, I've learned how to exist in that circumstance. Paul will say that the secret of this, this is just a, a verse earlier here, he says, the secret of being able to live in that way is contentedness. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, back in our uh, chapter 6 passage there, Paul says that godliness with contentment is great gain. But you see, it's a different kind of gain than those false teachers were presenting. It's not even necessarily a financial gain. But Paul says, look, godliness with contentment is great gain. And the error of these false teachers is that they were focused primarily on the relationship between godliness and wealth. And Paul's basically saying here is, no, it's not about that at all. There's a very prevalent teaching, as you know, I said this last week, that links godliness with material gain. And Paul, I think, repudiates that idea. And he doesn't minimize great gain that comes from the life of godliness. He just simply clarifies an understanding of what great gain actually is. Because wealth and all the possessions that it can bring, it can never bring with it a corresponding contentment. In fact, as I kind of opened with, oftentimes it brings the exact opposite, doesn't it? 
because you begin to acquire these things and then you need more of these things or the next best of these particular things. And it's not until the heart is content with what it has and what it does not have that a person is truly free. You've heard the expression, much wants more. Maybe you've heard that. And I think it's an expression because it's true. We get a little and we want a little more and a little more and a little more. But it's not until the heart is content with what it has and what it doesn't have that we're truly a free people. Contentment, it brings with it this sense of self-sufficiency. And what I mean by that is I have everything I need. I'm good. It brings with it that. Warren Wiersbe, who once again is becoming one of my favorites, he said this, true contentment, it comes from godliness in the heart, not wealth in the hand. I like Warren Wiersbe. And it's not until a person is in the place of contentment that they're truly independent. That's why Paul could say, if I abound, great. If I'm brought low, that's fine too. I've learned contentment in every situation. If you depend on material things for peace and assurance, you will never have peace and assurance. Because even if you get everything you need, then suddenly what becomes the fear? What if I lose everything I have? What if somebody comes in and takes everything I have? I better get a bigger fence and a better security system. And suddenly you are fearful. You're not content. You've lost it. There's not peace. There's not assurance because of those things. Now, here's a point that I want to draw your attention to. If you look at that Philippians passage I put up a moment ago, this is Philippians 4.11. Paul there, he said, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, I focused a moment ago on the idea of being content. But notice in the beginning of the part that I have underlined, he says, I have learned. Paul learned to be content. We can learn to be content. And what I appreciate about it is the Apostle Paul, if he needed to learn, then there's a good chance Greg needs to learn. And as do each of you need to learn as well. And so then, how do we learn to be content with the things that we have? Well, one action point in our First Timothy passage here is that realization, really a reminder. We probably all know this. But a reminder, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For, he says, we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. Verse 7 of our chapter 6 passage here. It's, so the, a beginning starting point is to realize we brought nothing in, and we can bring nothing out. You've heard the expression, he who dies with the most toys wins. Okay, somebody over here, I like their answer better. But you've heard the expression, he who dies with the most toys wins. And it's supposed to stir up like, you know, don't give up, get it, everything you can get for yourself. I think I prefer the alternative statement, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Uh, and it's a little morbid here, but that's the truth. You still die, and you're not taking it with you. You've heard people say when somebody super, super rich dies, they, you know, in a private little corner while they're eating little hors d'oeuvres kind of thing. So I say, so how much did he leave? All of it. Very good. Yeah. He left all of it. Some of you were sneaking and reading my sermon. <laughs> Very good. These are my punchlines. You remember the Egyptian pharaohs of old, they would bury themselves with all kinds of treasures, even wives and so on, they would bury themselves and so on with. 
And the reality is none of them could take any of it with them. And as they had begun discovering certain things, all the treasure's still sitting right there, even as their body has decayed. You'll never see a U-Haul trailing a hearse. And so by stating the obvious, Paul here, he's emphasizing that material things have their place, but it's only for a short time. We brought nothing in, we can take nothing out. And so any material things are for this particular point in time and this particular point in time only. And so since that's true, since we can't take anything with us, whatever it is that we acquire this side, then we have to conclude that there must be something greater to live for. So again, we're going back to that question, well, how can I learn contentedness here on this earth? We'll learn the first principle is there has to be something greater to live for than getting all the most toys, correct? That's this first point here. The second point is the point that Paul makes in verse 8. He says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. You've heard of Henry David Thoreau, maybe in your English class when you were back in high school, not quite paying attention. I'm looking at some who I imagine weren't um, here. I, I told you last week, I failed English class. I don't know, how, I speak pretty good English. Somehow I failed the class. Just a marking period, by the way, for those that were wondering. Uh, just the one, yes. Uh, but anyway, Henry David Thoreau, he was a naturalist. He wrote in the 1800s. He reminded us of this. He says, a man is wealthy in proportion to the number of things he can afford to do without. That's a truly wealthy person. I don't need that. I'm fine without that. Now, he wasn't a Christian, Thoreau, so he he got a lot of other things wrong, philosophically, religiously, and so on. But he got that one right. And so Paul says something similar. He says, look, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. His point there being, if we have the basic necessities of life, if I have the basic necessities of life, I'll be content with that. If I happen to abound in a particular season of my life, I'm content with that. If I don't have as much, but I have the basic necessities, well, then I am content. So according then to the Apostle Paul, complete contentment, it consists of being satisfied with having those basic necessities that are met. And with that then comes this realization that this world is not our home. And that this idea of setting too deep a root system here in this world, in reality, it really doesn't make sense to do that. Because we're here 70, 80, 90 years maybe, if we're fortunate. But we'll be in eternity for all of eternity. 10,000 years we've just begun, as that song says, to sing his praise. Setting a a root structure too deep here on this earth, it's akin to determining how detailed you want your accommodations to be for your weekend camping trip, as if I go camping a lot. But, you know, if you're going to go on a weekend camping trip and you set your little tent up, the idea of maybe having a nice deck build off the back of your tent, that would probably be great. But it doesn't make sense. You're only going to be there for two days. You're going to put in all that effort and then be leaving. So Paul here, he contrasts the one who's content with what they do have with the one that's focused on what they do not have. He goes on in verse 9, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires 
that plunge people into ruin and into destruction. Senseless desires, it, that's this idea of covetousness. This word desire, it kind of stuck, stood out to me because in the English language, in our language that we're using, it could mean anything from I absolutely have to have this thing, desire, to kind of a preference. I don't really desire that. You know, a preference that it, it could be of ours. But in the language that Paul was writing in, it conveyed a much stronger feeling or desire, much, much stronger. It was a determined will that had to be met. It was a determination that nothing was going to come in my way from me getting that particular thing. Guy King, he said, it's a making up of the mind. It's a setting of all of one's gifts and all of one's energies toward this particular thing in order to obtain that particular thing. That's the strong word that Paul is using there when he, he uses that word desire in verse 9. And so now then, in verse 9 and, and even eight, uh, in later in verse 10, Paul's going to contrast the one who has and is happy with that and the one who doesn't have is, an upset, is upset with that. He begins with the word, but. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. They fall into a snare. They fall into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is what happens to a person that does not have a godly attitude toward possessions, toward wealth, this side of heaven. They're plunged into these things that he mentions. The first one he says is they fall into a temptation. Then he compares that to a snare. It's a trap, he says. So know this, the unalterable pursuit of wealth. I'm going to get it and nothing's going to get in my way and nothing's going to stop me. That unalterable pursuit of wealth, it's a trap, Paul says. And it's a trap that will lead to bondage. That the desire becomes so, so strong that a person can no longer deliver themselves from it. They're in a trap, and they're stuck there. They become, to use a different metaphor, they're stuck on that hamster wheel, and they're going, and they're going, and they're going, and they're never getting to the place they're hoping to get, and they will never attain what they're hoping to attain. You've heard, again, the expression, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. I just want a little bit more. And they're going and they're going and they're going. So that's the first thing Paul says. It's a trap. It'll, it'll uh, ensnare you. You'll be in bondage to it and chasing after it. Now he switches metaphors at the end of the verse. And he talks about these desires plunging people into ruin and destruction. There he's using a word which is conveying this idea of a person that is drowning. They've been plunged into the depths of a body of water, into a sea of some, uh, some form there, and they're drowning. And what began as a pleasant swim out in the ocean or something now has become a struggle for their very existence, for their life. That's this danger of covetousness. I hope we're driving home this point that this thing that we think we might be able to just keep inside and nobody else will know and it'll be fine and it'll motivate me to be a hardworking individual or whatever it might be, be on your guard against this thing in life because it's a snare, it's a trap, it can plunge you into the depths of a sea and overtake your life. Paul says the person that has this unalterable pursuit of riches, he says in verse 9, 
They fall into many senseless and harmful desires. Senseless, without sense, obviously. That's not the most profound thing you've heard today. It's, it means irrational. That doesn't make any sense. It means illogical. And so again, if the riches of this temporary world are for this world and this world only, shouldn't our attention focus, uh, our attention and focus be on those riches that are of the eternal world? Wouldn't that make more sense? Wouldn't that be more logical? Especially if you're a Christian. Because you know about the world to come. And you've bought into the idea of the world to come. Why would you give your entire life to possess something that you will only be able to possess for a short time? Again, it's like building that deck off the back of your tent. The classic verse, Mark chapter 8, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, in addition to senseless, Paul, in verse 9, he calls covetousness harmful. That the wholehearted pursuit of material wealth is harmful to a person's spiritual life. That's a, a lesson we need to learn and know. Paul says the wholehearted pursuit of material wealth will be harmful to your spiritual life. Or, Well, yeah, it will be harmful because it's a wholehearted pursuit. He, he says a little later in the verse that it plunges the people into ruin and uh, destruction. That all-consuming desire to accumulate wealth fixes a person's attention on this world and takes their attention off of the next world. And so then, in their pursuit of wealth, people become more and more attached to this world, which results in them being less and less interested in the things of God and even, ultimately, in God himself. That's destruction. It leads to destruction. Go on in verse 10, Paul says, for those, excuse me, for, he says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, he starts with the word for. Maybe, I'm not sure about this, but some versions might have here the word because. He's therefore. He's making his conclusion. I've said all these things that I said about covetousness and the dangers of these things, and now he comes and he makes his conclusion here. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, please be careful. Notice, Paul's not saying that money is a root of all evil. Because there's plenty of people that have money, all kinds of money, that aren't engaged in all sorts of evil. And there are plenty of people that don't have any money at all that are engaged in all kinds of evil. So Paul is saying here the love of money is a root of all evil. It's not money in and of itself that is being spoken of. It's the love of money because money is amoral. Money, it can be used to accomplish great good and it can also be used to accomplish great evil. And it's the condition of the heart of the person that is wielding that money that will determine if it's going to be used for good or for evil. And so what Paul is talking about is that destructive danger that comes into a person's life because they have made money their primary pursuit. As one commentator said, their primary pursuit became gold, not God. And that's the person Paul is speaking of. 
It's that sort of desire that he declares will lead to all kinds of evil. It's that sort of desire that rests in a person's heart that becomes a seedbed of sin. It's just sort of like a greenhouse you have in your backyard and things can grow in there. It's a seedbed for it. And so, look, I, I hope I made my point. Did I make my point? We all like, we got it. It's bad. I'll stay away from it. I promise. All right. So let me just close then with two things, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. First thing I want to kind of look at real quickly is how then should the follower of Christ, and I, I'm, I know that not everybody in this room has begun a relationship with Christ yet, and you're discovering what it means to do so. I hope today is the day that you'll give your life to Christ. But most of us in this room, we have. We, we consider ourselves, we think of ourselves as a follower of Christ, and so we want to know what direction he's going so that we can follow after him. So the first question is, how should the follower of Christ view and approach money? And then the second question is, is to begin to ask ourselves, are there any warning signs that I can look for in my life that would be an indicator that I have a, uh, an inappropriate relationship with wealth in my heart? Are you with me on that? So let's look at the first one. How should the follower of Christ view and approach money? First, these are not necessarily in order of importance. One of the things, I think, is the believer must realize that having money in and of itself is not right or wrong. Okay, it's not wrong necessarily because a person has money. The Bible doesn't teach that being wealthy is a sin, even as it doesn't teach that being poor is a mark of God's favor on your life. It doesn't teach either of those things or his disfavor on your life, as some people teach. So money in and of itself isn't wrong. Second, know this. The believer should recognize that any money that we do have, any wealth, any resources that we do have, are a provision from God that we have been entrusted with as a steward, to use kind of the Bible word, or as a manager over. That ultimately it's not really our own. It's his, and we will have to give an account for it. That's the second point. That, we, that any provisions we have, they came from God. The third point, I think, that is important is how should the Christian view resources? That we need to hold our resources lightly. In the event that God calls us to give them away in some particular form, because remember, he's the owner, we're the manager, he may call us up and put in an order and say, this is what I want you to do with it. And so we need to hold these resources lightly in the event that he moves and directs. Fourthly, this comes, in my opinion, from the book of James. We need to be careful that we don't think of people that have a lot of money as better than people that don't have any. And similarly, apply that to our lives. We need to be careful. We don't think we're better than other people because we have more, they have less, or that we're less than people because we have less and they have more. You with me on that? And so keep that in mind. Fifth, we must never make pursuit of money the highest goal in our lives. As you know, Matthew 6.33, it talks about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He'll provide. And then lastly, our resources should always be used with an eye on eternity. And so it's true, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And sorry, Lord, you've entrusted me with this. What do you want me to do with this? How, how do you want me to honor you? How do you want me to use this to advance your kingdom? Why did you entrust me with this? Take that into account. Ask that question. See what the Lord 
uh, might answer. Again, the issue is not money, but our attitude toward money that becomes the problem. Now, the second question that I posed a moment ago is, are there any warning signs that we want to be on the lookout in our own lives so that we're not drawn away by covetousness, as Paul said, would occur? Well, I think here's a few. First, those who love money are more concerned with making it than with things like honesty and integrity. What's the most important thing? Well, my, my name. I want to be an honest individual. I want to live my life with integrity. Well, that's what some people think. Other people think it's money. I want money. And if I have to cut corners and I have to be dishonest and maybe even, you know, sacrifice a little integrity here, I'll do that because this is my most important thing. Well, for the Christian, if you see in your life that you're willing to cut some corners because it means more money coming in, be on your guard. That means covetousness is entering in. Remember, it's a root of every kind of evil. That little root is starting to set in in your life. Be careful. That's a warning sign. Here's the second one, as we learned today. Those who love money never have enough money. And so you can know if that's starting to settle into your heart if you find that you're never satisfied, that you never have enough, that you always want just a little bit more. That should serve as a warning sign to you. A third thing, I think those that have a lot of money, or not even that, let me rephrase that, those that love money like to flaunt how much money they have. They like to show people how wealthy they are. They like to show people the nice fancy things that they're able to buy or the nice fancy cars that they have and so on. And some have gotten good at kind of hiding it, you know, got a new car today. You know, one of these things, pretty fancy, isn't it? You know, kind of thing. And so they like to flaunt it, let everyone see how much they have. If you notice that tendency in your heart, be careful. And lastly, those, and maybe there's more, and I'm sure we could have discussions over bagels. We have free bagels back there if you'd like one, folks. Um, those who love money, they resent giving it away or spending it on others. It's all for themselves. So a good follow-up question is, are you stingy? Do you, he is. <laughs> Do you find that you're stingy? Well, if that's the case, you know the best way to get, get past that is just start giving money away to people. Now, I'm not just talking about like, you know, some random guy you find on the street or whatever, but look for ways to be a blessing to other people with your resources. And then God will begin to say, you know what, this is even more valuable. This experience that I have is more valuable than hoarding it for myself. And so there are ways that you can deal with it. But if you notice, man, I, I don't like to give it. I want it all for myself and I'm accumulating for myself and I'm bigger, building bigger barns for myself. That's a warning sign. Be on your guard. And so this all started with Paul talking about false teachers and one of their motivations for their false teachings was they had this vain imagination that godliness was a means to gain. But I, I think for us, maybe a more practical application and an immediate application for us today is to look at our own hearts. And how could I go down this particular direction that I don't want to go down? How can I be on my guard against it? Again, Paul, he ends with this. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Just not interested in it anymore. They drifted away pursuing something else, and they have pierced themselves through 
with many pangs. I don't want to end up in that place, do you? No. Well, then, before we get there, be on your guard to keep you from going there. Amen, friends? Let's pray together, then we're going to bring the worship team back. We're going to celebrate communion with one another. Father, we, we appreciate your word. Lord, you are wise, and you know. And you know the tendency of our hearts. You know how we can be led astray. We can be drawn away after temporal things. And so, Lord, through the wisdom of your servant Paul, Lord, you've presented this material to us and others in the Scripture. And so, Lord, I pray for every one of us here that we would take it to heart. We would search out our hearts. We'd have you search out our hearts and reveal, Lord, if there's any tendency toward this sin of covetousness in there. And, Lord, that you would impress upon us today, Lord, upon me today, how serious, Lord, this uh, sin can be in our hearts and that we might give it over to you and walk afresh as we leave from this place. And we believe that will honor you and your son, which is our chief goal. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen.